0: On June 17th, 1972, there were burglars arrested in the offices of the Democratic National Convention because they were planting surveillance bugs and stealing documents from the Watergate complex. Bob Woodward of the Washington Washington Post reported that one of those thieves possessed checks signed by a man named E. Howard Hunt. And that that man, Hunt, was connected to a man named Charles Colson, a political advisor to President Richard Nixon. And three days later, Nixon was advised to shut down the investigation of that break-in. He agreed and gave the order. In September of that same year, the Watergate burglars were indicted by a jury. Now, when I grew up and I heard that story, I thought very soon after that, the president was found out, he resigned, and that was the scandal. But it wasn't until a year later, in July of 1973, that Nixon refused to turn over the presidential tapes to the Senate Watergate Committee, confirming his involvement in the scandal. And it took the Supreme Court of the United States to demand Nixon to turn in the tapes. And then in August of 73, he resigned from the presidency. This is by far one of the most famous cover-ups in our history. And when I say cover-up, I mean a lot more than a scandal or sin. I mean, first of all, that someone has done the wrong thing, but other people know about the crime. And there's not just a passive silence about the issue, there is proactive hiding. People trying to cover their tracks. That is what I call a cover-up, and we have had our fair share in our country. One of the most infamous is the Catholic Church cover-up of abusive priests, The cover-up of bad loans made by banks in the early 2000s. Hollywood celebrities knowing about Harvey Weinstein. Cover-up after cover-up after cover-up. It can make a lot of us feel cynical. It's no wonder that we don't trust institutions anymore. But it is very easy to feel high and mighty about all of those cover-ups by politicians and priests and celebrities. But the big question for us is, how many times have we covered our tracks? Have you ever shredded that essential document? Have you ever fudged numbers on a spreadsheet? Did you ever fail to mention the purchase you made? Have you ever deleted a search history, throw away a scandalous letter? It's not just the rich and powerful who cover up their sins. This is something that all of us do. This is very human, to be a cover-up artist, hiding the evidence. A cover-up is the very first thing that we did. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit from the tree prohibited by God, and what do they do first? They run and they hide from him. They cover their naked bodies because they see themselves in their darkest hour and they are ashamed. The Apostle John summarizes this condition of covering up our failures in this way. He says, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. We can put this verse into much more modern language. We might say it this way. We don't want to be judged. Broken men don't want to be told that they're broken, and fallen women don't want to be told they're fallen. Sinful humans do not want to hear that they're sinful. We don't want to be confronted with our shortcomings. I've never met someone who likes the feeling or experience of criticism. And maybe we don't want to be judged because it's the truth and the truth hurts. Or maybe we think our behavior is justified or we just can't come to grips with the darkness within. But the reasons we don't want to be judged are really beside the the point. The fact is, we don't want to be judged. But there's a contradiction in our lives because even though we don't want to be judged, we don't want anyone else's scrutiny. At the same time, we kind of like to judge others. And maybe I shouldn't speak for everyone in this room, but I know that in my worst moments, I like to judge other people. I want to know the juicy details about a scandal. I want to know the hot gossip. At our worst, we want to know about everyone else's weaknesses. And if you don't believe me, Why are gossip columns a business? Why else do we research and obsess over celebrities who have breakdowns? Why do we pry people for confidential information? It's because we want to know. And we want to judge. And there's just that tiny rush of self-righteousness you get when you hear about someone else's crash and burn. Because once I know what someone else has done, I know that I'm not as bad as them. We use other people's vices as pedestals upon which to look down because where they are weak, we are strong. And so we have these twin vices that affect us at the exact same time. We cover up our sin. We cover our tracks. We hide our failures. And we're self-righteous about others' sins. We look down on what others fail to do. Now, For Sunday morning at 11 a.m., that is pretty depressing commentary on the human condition. But the good news, and I'll start with the good news, God does not leave us to our fallen condition. He doesn't want us to forever struggle with these two vices. He has already come to rescue us, and he wants to transform each and every person in this room. But the way he does it, the way God rescues and transforms us, is not easy. And so I collected kind of all of the verses in James that I thought addressed this topic. And the way he remedies or wants to remedy the vices in our souls, he writes both a fact and a command. And the fact is, and he tells this to all of us, you will be judged. We heard this over and over again in what Zach read for us today. At the end of chapter 2, James writes, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Not might be judged or possibly be judged or there's a good chance you're going to be judged. You will be judged. At the beginning of chapter 3, James writes, Not many of you should become teachers because we who teach will be judged more strictly. So everybody's going to be judged but teachers, those who teach in ministry, will be judged more strictly. At the end of chapter 5, James tells us, don't grumble against one another or you will be judged. And by the way, the judge is standing at the door. He says, you will be judged by the judge. And James never says whether he's referring to God or Jesus, but the whole New Testament is in agreement that when Christ comes again, he will come as the judge. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, the Father entrusts all judgment to me. Paul says that all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every time at the end of our service when we confess our faith in the Apostles' Creed, we say that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And that, that truth, this fact, is very relevant to any of us who have covered up our bad behavior or are ever thinking about doing it. Because Jesus is not a judge that can be bribed. He can't be misled or fooled. He shows no partiality to wealth or status or skin color or gender. Jesus knows us exactly as we are. What we've done, what we haven't done, the thoughts that pass through our minds. He knows everything. And he he teaches over and over through his ministry. He says, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. He basically is saying at the end, there's not going to be any secrets, nothing hush-hush, nothing classified to Christ. Judgment is not a matter of if, but when. And here's the thing, when you talk about judgment at church, there's a lot of maybe bad history there. And so I'll be the first one to say that fact can be scary unless... You know the judge. If you know him, if you know his character, if you know who Jesus is and what he did in his life, death, and resurrection, that fact can be scary. But because we know the judge, because we know he's gracious and merciful, we know that he himself came to save us beyond judgment, to spare us condemnation, we're not scared. Christians have actually prayed, Lord, come quickly. They know that in his return, we know that Christ will come back to judge. And we want him to do that because we want his love and his justice, his compassion and his forgiveness. But we also know we can't con Jesus into believing we're okay. Cover-ups may be common. They may be human nature, but they don't work on God, which is why James is so quick to issue this command to all of us today. Because of that fact, because all of us will be judged, whoever has lived, is living, or will live, his command is, don't judge. And he gives this command by asking a rhetorical question. He says, and you, who are you to judge? And the answer is implied, you are not. James says, all right, Mitch, tell me who you think you are to be in a position of judgment over others. Reading this week, I could just picture him saying, Mitch, look, when you are judgmental, you are judging someone based on the law, and that law is the very same law you break, which makes you a hypocrite. Do not judge. God is the only judge. You are not in that position. In fact, you will be judged, so do not be judgmental of others. James says so confidently this fact and this command. You will be judged, so do not judge. Now, I know that there are a lot of misunderstandings about this command out there, and so I think we actually need to read the rest of the letter of James to understand what he's really talking about. These are the last two verses of James. James says, if any of you wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I want that verse to be put on the screen so that we can all see this. If any of you should wander from the truth And someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James thinks that it is a good thing in the church when people mutually correct one another. And these verses are a perfect ending to this letter because James has been trying to save us from the error of our ways. Remember, he's been saying that there are two ways of life. You can either follow Jesus and have the abundant life of obeying him, or you can have the way that leads to death. So which one should you choose? Choose the obvious one. Choose life. Choose the way of Jesus. Now, sometimes we mistake that command, do not judge, to mean you can't tell me I'm doing anything wrong. But that actually doesn't fit with these last verses. James thinks it's good for sinners to help each other, to support one another, to turn them from the error of their ways. If you confronted me and said, Mitch, I don't think that decision you made was a wise one. If my wife, Allison, sat me down and said, look, you didn't handle that situation the way you should have. Or if my brothers told me, Mitch, you've had this bad habit for a long time and you need to break it, I can't say back to them, hey, well, Jesus says don't judge. So you can't tell me I'm doing anything wrong. That is a permission slip to do whatever I want with no accountability. When Jesus talks about judgment. He gives an incredible analogy that I think really helps us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but pay attention not to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a two by four in yours? You hypocrite. The Greek word is stage actor. You performance artist. Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is not saying you can't confront anybody, just permit everybody to do anything. This is a big permission slip. He doesn't do that. He cares about mutual correction in the church. He wants a church that will gracefully remove planks and specks from each other's eyes. This is why I think we need a lot more words than judge or judgmental. I think what Jesus and his Apostle James are really getting at, I think the heart of the issue is that they are commanding us to avoid hypocrisy. That merciless condemnation of others trigger happy denunciation while pretending to be perfect. I have this email saved from my brother's That they sent me right before I started graduate school. I was about to uh, go into seminary at Abilene Christian University, and I just asked them for advice, you know, how to make the best of the experience. I was going to be reading books and living in the library and writing essays, and I just, I knew that they had gone through the same thing, so I wanted uh, any wisdom they had. And my oldest brother gave me this big warning. I mean, it was like half the email about not being judgmental. And I just had no idea what that had to do with grad school. And then I went to grad school and found out. Because it is very easy when you get more and more education to become very, very condescending. And very arrogant and very proud. And I'm so glad that he warned me ahead of time because... It is a real temptation. He said, be watchful of thinking that your peers are behind you because they don't think what you think. Be watchful of thinking that you are the smart one in the room, that you are on the vanguard because other people haven't figured out what you have. Be watchful for feeling like you're more experienced than your peers and that therefore you are set and don't have plenty of flaws and areas of growth yourself. I was hoping for them to tell me like how to get around the library, but it would cut very deep into my personal temptations. Because that's what we need the church for. That's what we need fellow Christians for, is to watch for our hearts and to tell each other, hey, I I think you're going off the path here. Not because we want to revel in someone else's failure, but because we want them to enjoy the life that Jesus has, the abundant life that he promises us in obedience to him. Jesus is saying, don't forget your flaws. Even in the good correction that Christians can offer to each other, judgmentalism is an incredible vice. Now, I think sometimes we can talk a big game at church. About being non-judgmental. We can kind of think of ourselves that way. But this week, I just thought about, okay, what are the different ways that Christians are judgmental? And I wasn't sure if we could go here. I didn't know if we could talk about this for a second, but I'm going to go for it. Ask yourself, in what ways are conservative Christians judgmental about certain things? and liberal Christians being judgmental about others. I'll talk about my experience. You can tell me afterward. In my experim- experience, just to name a few things, conservative Christians can be very judgmental about premarital sex, children born out of wedlock, divorce, and abortion. And in my experience, liberal Christians are very judgmental about racism and sexism and the destruction of the environment, just to name a few things that both sides can be judgmental about. Now, fortunately, all Christians are judgmental about who you vote for, so we have that in common. But if your first thought when you think about this is, well, I'm judgmental about it because it's wrong, you're absolutely right. Those are all sins. They are all wrong. They all go against God's will for flourishing as men and women made in his image. And we cannot call good what is evil or evil what is good. We must call sin what it is. But the problem is not just calling sin what it is. It's not helping people in their struggle with sin. Because James is quick to tell us. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. So, for example, we could say, congratulations, we know that watching porn is wrong. It objectifies women. It enslaves you to a vice. Yes, we know it is wrong. But do you have mercy for those who are struggling with that sin? Do you have mercy? Do you have compassion? Do you want that person to come back to the way of life and the way of Jesus? We must judge in the sense of discerning what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. Yes, we have to do that. We can't conflate them. We can't make them interchangeable. But we must not judge without mercy. That's the problem of being judgmental Christians. It's what makes us hypocritical. Who wants to join a church of judgment without mercy? Because we can talk a big game about not being judgmental. But when we really think about it, when we really dive deep, when we look in the mirror, as James says, we will see we can be ruthless to those who don't struggle with the sins we struggle with. And Christ is on the exact same page as James, or James is the same page, it's on the same page with Jesus. Jesus says this, if you forgive other people when they sin, your heavenly Father will forgive you, which is great news. But then he says, if you don't forgive others, if you are judgmental without mercy, your Father will not forgive your sins. Look at that verse on the screen. If you forgive other people, When they sin, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, if you aren't merciful, if you show judgment without mercy, your Father will not forgive your sins. You have forfeited the forgiveness of God. James says in one of the verses we read today, we know we all stumble in many ways. Everyone. Everyone in this room, everyone outside of this room. And because we know that, we have to discern what's right and wrong with humility and compassion for fellow sinners. And the good news is that we have a good and righteous judge. And he isn't tricked by our cover-ups. He isn't shocked about what we do. He knows it all ahead of time. But our judge, our good and faithful and righteous judge, will not share his role with us. None of us are in the position to judge. Our judge cannot and will not ever run out of mercy. He is infinitely gracious and will forgive any sins if we turn to him. But our judge is the cure to the vices of cover-ups and self-righteousness. The fact is, James says, we will all be judged, and therefore, do not judge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we fall short. We have so many weaknesses and vices. And so, so often we try to hide these things from those we love from those who care about us, from our fellow Christians. We cover everything up that we're ashamed of, but you can't be tricked by cover-ups. You will judge each and every one of us, but the good news is that you came yourself and you submitted to the judgment of Pontius Pilate. You died for the forgiveness of our sins. And so there is salvation beyond judgment. There is mercy beyond judgment. So, Father, help us as a church to resist judgment without mercy. We don't want to be trigger-happy with denunciations. We don't want to be hypocrites. Help us to align our lives with our faith. Help us to be merciful and compassionate to all those who are struggling Not to look down on those who struggle with something we don't struggle with, but to call them up to a holier and more abundant life. Yes, Father, we need your wisdom and discernment in all things. We need to know what's right and what's wrong. But we also need to know the wrong in us, the wrong in me. So that we are never proud never arrogant, always humble, and always compassionate for fellow sinners. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.